0: Welcome to The Dispatch Podcast. I'm Adam O'Neill, executive editor of The Dispatch. Today we've got a really insightful interview with Walter Russell Mead. Walter is a distinguished fellow at the Hudson Institute, a professor at Bard College, and a columnist for The Wall Street Journal. He also recently returned from a visit to Ukraine and gleaned a lot of information about what's happening on the ground while he was on his trip. One quick programming note, we recorded this interview just a few hours before the short-lived mutiny or rebellion inside of Russia over the weekend, so we don't touch on those events in the interview. But Walter still provides a lot of context and understanding about the war that should be useful, and we hope you enjoy. Walter, welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. Thanks for taking the time to chat
1: today. It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: What we'd really like to start out is just talk to us about what it was like being on the ground in Ukraine not too long ago, just uh, right around before the counter got rolling, if I'm not mistaken.
1: That's right. Well, it was uh, it was a very strange experience. Uh, for one thing, when we got there, the uh, uh, Dow Jones Wall Street Journal security made me put on a flak jacket, a very heavy flak jacket and a uh, um, helmet, which we didn't use, fortunately, and didn't need to use. There was an air raid while I was, uh, air raid siren while I was there. I uh, demonstrated I'm totally unfit as a war correspondent because I slept right through it. Um, Had I actually woken up, I would have gone down to the bomb shelter in the hotel. And uh, I'm happy to report there is progress in the world today because the bomb shelter has Wi-Fi. And so, uh, yeah, exactly. Unlike people in the London Blitz or whatever, if you have to, you know, Cower in your bomb shelter all night. You can at least catch up with your email.
0: That was, you know, the couple of trips I'd taken to Ukraine pre pre twenty twenty two. The thing that struck me the most, even when you were out east, like Mariupol, when that city still existed, was how normal life was. I I went bowling. You know, we went in the morning. We went to the front line, checked out some bunkers, and then in the afternoon we went bowling before our next meeting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Not that specifically, but that experience.
1: It's a strange thing about war. Um, Remember, I was actually in Moscow when uh, Yeltsin attacked Parliament, you know, and there were actually, there was fighting in Moscow. I had been visiting a a friend and we get the news and suddenly, you know, what I'm looking at is, uh, oh my gosh, is this war going to mess up my subway ride home? You know, is it going to affect the lines I'm going to be on? You sort of realize one of the things about conflict is that everybody in a conflict zone or anywhere near a conflict zone still has daily life to do. It's like, oh no, civil war, how am I going to get to the dry cleaners? And um, and this effort of ordinary people to keep going with their lives is one of the things, I think it's hardest to understand if you haven't been in a war zone, but it's kind of a dominant reality if you're there.
0: Now, that's that's true certainly in and- Kiev the western parts of Ukraine but there are tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of men and some women on the front lines you know dying by the hundreds perhaps every day uh, as as at the time we're speaking the counteroffensive is underway what does success look like to you and based on your conversation to you as a strategist a historian a thinker but also as someone who's been talking to ukrainians veterans regular people what are they hoping out of this uh, summer offensive
1: well, the everybody I met uh, thought that territorial compromise with Russia was impossible. I mean, that, you know, I they, I don't know if they'll be able to achieve this, but um, they said, look, you know, uh, we had we had a treaty with Russia in 1991. They recognized our boundaries. When they saw an opportunity, they invaded. In 2014, they uh, they occupied a lot of the country. We tried. We tried to get security guarantees. We tried to get negotiations. They attacked again when they thought they had a great opportunity. They had beautiful things like the Budapest Memorandum and all of these, you know, solemn promises. Uh, Russia attacks. Russia attacks again. So, one guy I met said to me, "Look," he said, "My grandfather fought the Russian. I think my grandkids will be fighting the Russians." And so a lot of people in Ukraine are kind of entering the war with this psychology. And when it comes down to the counteroffensive, obviously they, you know, they want to get as much back as they can. They want to defeat Russia. You'll hear a number of people in Ukraine talk about things like wanting to dismember Russia after the war, that you know, this empire with its long history of expansion and, and sort of grandiosity and so on is just a danger. And until as long as Russia exists, Ukraine can't be safe.
0: And the way that that's certainly how, how they think of it, but in America and much of the West, a lot of the framing is you look at Russia's invasion of Ukraine as a problem. And it certainly is. You would prefer that countries not invade other countries and nuclear Sabler, ratting, sabler rattling. And we can get into that in a minute. But why why do you see it also is an opportunity for the United States. I know you've written about this in in the journal before.
1: Yeah, you know, different countries look at the situation differently because, in fact, we have different interests and priorities. And I think the American interest is not actually for the Russian Federation to be dismantled. I think you know a large chaotic situation from you know Vladivostok to the Ukrainian frontier with loose nukes running around and goodness knows what kinds of warlords or different conflicts emerging with china gaining a tremendous amount of of uh, interest and influence in that part of the world from the united states point of view would be a disaster so the ukrainians may say the existence of russia is a threat to ukraine's independence and sovereignty americans might say the disappearance of russia is a threat our interest. So we see the thing differently. And I don't think it means they're moral or we're immoral or vice versa. You just look at the world from where you sit. Now, when it comes to, you know, what should we be going for? Why is there an opportunity here? It's this. I think it's in our interest to see Russia realize that the door on expansion to the West is closed. That uh, the Russian Empire, as it was known by Peter the Great, as, as it was known by Catherine the Great, is just not happening anymore. Just as the British have had to realize the British Empire is dead, the French have had to realize that you know, France is no longer a world power just as the Spanish, well, they
0: have to realize that they may they might not accept it totally yet, but they they should realize
1: that, right? <laughs> there, I think we can expect that that there'll be a politics of gesture. Look, I think ever since the Battle of Waterloo, the French um, smart French people have understood that they are not the world's dominant power, but every ruler of France has understood that. In order to maintain your political power at home, you need to make France look as great as possible on the world stage. So you strut, you posture, you convene international meetings in Paris, you do everything you can. And I think we can expect that any future Russian leader will have politics of of imperial nostalgia the way that they do in Britain and so on and so forth. Fine. Uh, You know, the rest of the world can live with that. But for Russia to accept the idea that they have to build a new idea of Russia, that, uh, you know, when Putin writes about Russia, when he thinks about Russian history, the great Russian empire and so on, and that for him, Russia is an empire or it's nothing. Actually, Russia is a nation, not an empire. And there needs to be a realistic concept of what Russia is, what its place in the world is, what its interests are, what its rights are, and that can't include creeping expansionism as far west as possible. So that I think is it's what we want to try to achieve here.
0: But didn't, didn't the west itself provoke Russia by expanding its empire uh, through NATO up to Russia's borders and making Putin feel so insecure, uh, so close to, to Moscow, uh, NATO troops?
1: I hear the voice of the devil's advocate here, Adam. I don't hear a lot of sincerity in your voice as you pose this question. I'm just
0: concerned about humiliating Mr. Putin, that's all.
1: You are. You know, uh, there's a song by Noel Coward I, I recommend that you go listen to. Don't let's be beastly to the Germans. Uh, that he wrote during the Blitz in World War II, though they've been a little naughty to the Poles and Czechs and Dutch. I don't suppose those people really mad- minded very much. Uh, so uh, look, the the Russian, we did in a sense provoke Russia, because when you put no fishing signs up on one side of a lake, you are sort of saying that, you know, and you put nothing up on the other side of the lake, you're actually broadcasting a, a message that fishing is permitted. So when we've partially expanded NATO, in a sense, we aggravated and annoyed the Russians, but when we didn't include, when we didn't think seriously about the security of any territory between Russia and NATO, we actually did create a situation of strategic instability And we're living with the consequences of that today.
0: So the problem isn't NATO expansion per se. It's not expanding fast enough if you're thinking about expanding.
1: That, you know, right. Well, let's just say not having a coherent security concept for the former Soviet space. Um, Because expansion of NATO makes a lot of sense in terms of of the countries that are in it, uh, consolidating Europe. But leaving a wide, a a large, strategically important area between Russia and NATO without clear demarcations lines and so on, that was a mistake.
0: Now, there's that argument, which as you can tell, I don't think is totally convincing, but I think it's worth bringing up because vast hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people actually believe that to be true if you think about the global South and their view of the conflict. But... Probably one of the more persuasive arguments is that Ukraine is nice. It's good to bloody the Russians and teach them a lesson, and we can send them some weapons. But really, this should be this should be a European problem. Uh, the wave of the future is East Asia. We need to be preparing Taiwan to to be able to pr- defend itself, or ideally deter an invasion from China. And there are only so many artillery shells. There are only so many anti ship weapons. So many Stingers and Ukraine, while it matters, it doesn't have TSMC, such an important role in global semiconductors, that sort of thing. What what do you make of the argument that we just need to shift to, uh, to East Asia and leave Europe in the past? It's a dying continent anyway.
1: Well, I think there's actually a significant amount of truth in it in that you know, Europe, is the, the most important, longest-running trend in international affairs is the declining importance globally of Europe. I mean, if you think about 1910, Europe basically ruled the entire world, and today, uh, the European Union altogether probably has less influence in the world than any one of three or four European great powers did in 1910. And while the Europeans have tried to build the EU as a way to to change that dynamic, I think it's even in Europe, there's this uneasy sense that they haven't succeeded. But, you know, to say that something is declining in importance is not the same thing as saying that it has no importance. And in fact, today we see Russia and China are largely aligned um, and uh, they are both... Uh, revisionist powers who want to upset, overturn, destroy the sort of maritime liberal commercial order that the United States has been working on building. And we need to oppose it. Um, I don't actually think that there is a, a big conflict between the things that Ukraine needs and the things that Taiwan needs. There are a few issues, but in the great scheme of things they're not decisive in either theater and certainly tanks bradley tanks are not what taiwan needs any 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 conflict involving taiwan is primarily a naval conflict while anything involving ukraine is clearly primarily a land conflict those are quite different things and
0: you you do you've done a little bit of traveling in your time uh when you when you go to japan when you go to taiwan which I think you've been to both since the Ukraine invasion began, if I'm not mistaken, certainly Japan, I know. Um, what are they telling you about how they perceive the conflict and America's role, for better or worse? Are they worried that we're being distracted by this, we, the Americans, or are they worried that we're not going to show the fortitude that they would hope to to other adversaries?
1: Well, I think both the Japanese and the Taiwanese have the governments have officially said that they support what the U.S. is doing in Ukraine. The Japanese have been really proactive. They've sent a mission to Ukraine. They've really uh, they're trying to get a NATO office opened in Tokyo. You know, for the Japanese who have Russia and China coming closer into alignment, they are close to both Russia and China. So Ukraine does not actually seem like it's a distant, irrelevant problem to Japan. And from Taiwan's point of view, Japan is so important to Taiwan that and, you know, the United States is so concerned with Ukraine that anything that's important to both Japan and the United States is by definition important to Taiwan. So they don't actually see the same kind of rigid separation between the European theater and the Asian theater as maybe some U.S.-based critics do.
2: Favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting auraframes.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code dispatch at checkout to save terms and conditions apply.
1: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile
2: for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done one one
0: interesting comparison and I want to talk a little bit about historical analogies in a second but First, you know, we can go to World War I, uh, the Winter War, Afghanistan for the Soviets or for us. But one interesting comparison you've made with Ukraine is that Ukraine is actually quite like Israel. Could you elaborate on sort of the Ukrainian spirit that you saw while you were there recently and how, how you view Israeli society and the, the differences and similarities between these, these two embattled nations?
1: Well, my comparison was actually kind of narrow and focused. In that Israel is a, is is a Israel is not in NATO. Israel doesn't have U.S. troops on its frontier, and Israel has to have be very vigilant about constant security threats. And it seems to me that that's that's where Ukraine is likely to end up for at least a period of time. It's not going to get into NATO right away. That you know, as you know, NATO. Requires unanimous consent uh, to bring in new members, and we are very, very far from having anything like unanimous consent uh, for Ukrainian membership in NATO today. And I wouldn't be surprised if a country like Turkey might not permanently veto Ukrainian membership. So, and there would, and I also think there might be absolutely nothing we could do about that as the United States. So um, we can't control the process of Ukraine's NATO accession. So NA- Ukraine may well be a country that has to be very vigilant about its own security, have to think that, not that, oh, war is this terrible thing that used to happen in the world. But now at the end of history, we live in a wonderful world of enlightenment and peace. But actually, we live in a world of constant threat. My grandfather fought the Russians. My grandfather. Kids may fight the Russians. And so, and again, from the American point of view, having a state like that on the, you know, sort of in in the space between Russia and the rest of Europe, that's a strategic asset. And the Baltic states, Poland, uh, Sweden and Finland are, and even Norway are, because of their own concerns about Russia, are likely to be quite sympathetic to this Ukrainian point of view. So that. Again, from the American point of view, it looks like we're about to have a bunch of focused, committed allies in the northern part of Europe who agree with our view that Russian power in Europe needs to be restricted and limited and who are prepared to be a lot more helpful about that than some of our older NATO allies who don't feel the threat in the same way.
0: When the war started, I was living in Warsaw at the time and uh, talk about a country of people who are steeped in their own history and are always thinking about it, and we, we're one thing we were with various people I was talking to was just going through the different examples. What is this war? Is this is this World War One where there's a spat between two countries that's going to bring all the great powers in and be horrific? Is this Hitler invading Poland? Is it going to turn into the extended Soviet occupation of Afghanistan? The attempted to subdue finland during world war ii when now we're 15 16 months into this conflict almost exactly 16 months as it's taking shape what what wars do you look to and think about um historically that are similar no two are the same but what where do you see anything striking
1: actually interesting the 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 point that i find myself looking at is that in almost all of these wars that you've mentioned, the conventional wisdom about that particular war was almost always wrong, and it constantly flipped. You know, when war comes, everybody wants to predict what's going to happen. War obviously engages our attention. It's a it, it, we want to know what's going to happen. We want to but you know what? People are almost always wrong about these things. Uh, And I think that's, that's already, we've already seen that in the Ukraine war. At the beginning, it's like, oh, Russia will never invade. They're just bluffing. That was the conventional wisdom. Then they invade and like Kiev will fall in three days. That was the conventional wisdom. Almost immediately after that, Russia has totally failed and confronted with the might of Western sanctions. Putin will be lucky if he can hold on to power. The war is over. Ukraine is going to win really fast. And it keeps flipping; it just keeps flipping. And all of the serious graybeards stroke their chins and it, you know, utter wise words. War, by definition, is an you know unpredictable thing. And uh, if everybody knew what was going to happen, uh, the two sides would settle because it would be clear what kind of conflict we're in and where it's going to go. So I have to say, we just don't know. The other thing about this war that's common to many wars is each side entered the war with a theory of victory. That is, for the Russians, it was going to be a quick march into Kiev. They felt the Ukrainian state really didn't have any cohesion. And then basically, Russia could pretty much do what it wanted. That was their theory of the war. And that's, that's how they tried to execute in the beginning. And the Western slash Ukrainian theory of the war was that the Russian economy is so incredibly small and vulnerable that, you know, that once Russia realizes what kind of a conflict it stumbled into, it just cannot hold on. And in almost every war I can think of, both sides come in with a theory of victory and both sides fairly rapidly realize their theory of victory was wrong. And now they're in a conflict that neither side really understands because your, your, your baseline assumptions didn't work. And so you're sort of in a death match and each is kind of struggling to get its hands on something, a dagger, a stick, some way to beat the other side. And this groping process, the struggling process, uh, that's, that's when in a sense you get into the real war. So I don't know where this thing is going, and I really don't think anybody else does.
0: It's sort of terrifying in a way to not know that, given that Vladimir Putin controls the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. And I don't think he needs all 6,000-odd nukes uh, to subdue Ukraine, or if it would actually do him any good. But how do you think of, given all the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. How do you think about nuclear risk? Because I can remember, I don't know, uh eight, six, seven, eight years ago, people saying we shouldn't send the Ukrainians javelins because it could lead to nuclear escalation. And here we are training them to fly F-16s. And clearly that that calculation of risk has shifted. Um, do you think it's shifted in a dangerous way? Or how do you how do you engage with adversaries when they have the ability to destroy the world if they're unhappy
1: we have to remember i i i actually am old enough to remember a lot of the cold war when we were doing that pretty much every day uh proxy wars were kind of you know a feature of life and even when you weren't actually fighting you had armed truces like on the korean peninsula that at any moment could erupt so um actually for 40 years Two nuclear adversaries faced off in a variety of places all over the world and nobody used nukes. So to some degree, maybe maybe I underestimate simply because, you know, I mean, I had my big panic about nuclear war when I was 10 years old during the Cuba Missile Crisis and all the adults around me really believed that we might all die that week in a nuclear conflict. So, um, you know oh, nuclear war, yawn, this again. You know, there's a certain thing that one gets from that. And I think in a younger generation, which doesn't have those memories, this now suddenly realized. oh, wait a minute, humanity stands on the brink of nuclear annihilation and we have these hostile great powers with nuclear weapons. Uh-oh, why anything could happen. Yes, that's true. And some of us have been living with that truth for seven decades or more. However, when we... I don't actually. When I think of Putin's escalatory capability, I don't actually go immediately to nuclear weapons. Um, uh, you know, back in the back in the day before the war, the reason that a lot of people used to argue that we shouldn't do anything about Ukraine is that Putin would have quote escalatory dominance unquote. That is to say, since he cared more about Ukraine fundamentally than we did at any given point, Putin would be, would be willing to, to go after his objectives more ruthlessly at a higher level of, of violence. So anything we do, we could dribble in javelins, we could dribble in F-16s and so on, but at every step of the way that we go, Putin would be willing to go a step further. And, you know, I think, you know, and it's possible that that's correct. Uh, in which case, you know, it's it, the the future looks rather cloudy. But again, I think Putin is less likely to move to nuclear weapons than than to do something else to make trouble for us. For example, he could start delivering sophisticated air defense systems to Iran, that would put Israel in the position of, you know, what if we wait another six weeks, the Iranians will have achieved the kinds of air defenses did mean that we could no longer be reliably sure that our planes could get to nuclear sites in Iran. And so either, you know, we either have to attack Iran now or we have to, um, you know, we have to accept an Iranian nuclear bomb. And so provoking a war or stirring up conflict in the Middle East for Putin, that would be a, you know, might be a very nice idea, double the price of oil, cause all kinds of economic problems everywhere, force the Ukraine, the U.S. instead of having to think about, oh, do we send weapons to Ukraine or Taiwan? Think, well, Ukraine, Taiwan, Israel, Saudi Arabia, where do we send our weapons? So it's a, you know, Putin, Putin's strategic ability is to do things that we don't expect in places that make problems for us that we just didn't think would happen and i would be more worried i am more worried about that than i am about a tactical nuke or something of that kind
0: last question i'm not going to ask you to predict exactly where the armistice lines will be drawn or how the war will
1: end because i would refuse to predict
0: (laughs) but but i do have to ask um in terms of just a framing or a way to think about it the ukrainians want a restoration of their post-soviet union borders as an independent country crimea everything the russians have said uh well you know we have this really deep connection to the donbass but also zaporizhia and Kherson. we have our mystical connection which is i didn't know about until they annexed uh those oblasts but they've basically said huge chunks of ukraine are actually part of russia now and that's a pretty irre- irreconcilable difference how or under what conditions or what needs to happen for them to get down to the negotiating table and not a joke like when the african leaders visited moscow and kiev and put out their points or when various people will suggest a formula like uh, the chinese had or other other actors you know the brazilians whoever but what actually gets them to sit down and talk about it or is this possible that it'll be decades before that something like that could happen
1: look you know there, there's sort of two ways countries can agree to end a war one is that when one side thinks it's lost the war or losing the war and it just needs to to make the best deal it can under bad circumstances that's one way you get a piece a winner and a loser and another way you get a piece is when both sides think they have nothing more to gain or They have more to lose from a continuation of hostilities than they have to gain. And so at that point, you can get some kind of a compromise piece. The the sort of general tendency in modern times is for these things to turn into frozen conflicts where neither side gives up its sort of abstract claims of sovereignty or whatever, but both on a pragmatic basis just decide to stop fighting. And these are, you know, that we call these coal pieces, whatever, um, like on the Korean peninsula during world war, during, you know, uh, we, we've seen a number of these coal pieces in, in the world. And it's partly, I think, um, you know, Ukraine is not going to want to sign a treaty that cedes territory legally to Russia And Russia is not going to want to give up its claims. So so because of that, we're probably more likely to see a cold peace than anything else, assuming neither side wins or loses. That is not a great thing from the US point of view, because I don't know how, if there's a cold peace, uh, what do we do about restoring normal trade relations with russia or economic relations with russia what about all of the sort of declarations by various world courts and you know legal authorities this is a genocide this is a war crime whatever a cold peace is not going to address any of those sort of legal issues so are we going to be left in a situation where russia is run by people that we are saying are war criminals Uh, One consequence of that would certainly be to drive Russia much closer to China for the long term. We're also likely to see countries like Germany with an economic interest in opening relations with Russia, really looking to erode any kind of Western united front on on those issues. So a cold peace is bad, but a cold peace may be the only thing that's possible.
0: Walter Russell Mead, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you.